Good morning, Keystone. Uh, as Brandon said, we're going to be uh, celebrating communion together later, later this morning. Uh, and we, we see communion here at Keystone, we often say this, like a family celebration. Meaning that, that if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, whether you are part of Keystone or just visiting, uh, we want you to celebrate with us. Uh, and so if you didn't get the chance to get one of these little cups uh, as you came in, if you can raise your hand, the ushers will be around with them, uh, and we'll, we'll celebrate later in the service this morning. We just want to make sure you have it so that, that you are ready. Uh, we are in a series on Genesis 1 through 11, uh, and in this series, part of what we've been doing is trying to look at how these first 11 chapters of the Bible tell a story that shapes the, the story of our own lives, it, including answering some of the kind of big questions we might have in our lives. Questions like, who am I? Who am I? Uh, and, and last week, uh, Pastor Ben kind of hit on that question, looking at it from the, the image of God and how that shapes who we are and how we relate to God, to, to ourselves, as well as to other people. And, and this morning, we're really going to kind of address that same question, who am I, looking at the aspect of our bodies, a- asking why, why do we have bodies? Why has God given us bodies? What, what does God say about our bodies in his word, and, and how should that shape how we think and feel and live in the bodies that he's given to us? Following the, the sermon a couple weeks ago where we talked about uh, creation and what it reveals to God, I, I encouraged you all to come up with what was one way that uh, you could use creation in the coming week to worship God, to see him through it. Uh, and, and, and part of what we did as a family, or, or what at least my son and I did, was I downloaded an app on my phone called uh, Seek. And, and this app is meant to use your phone camera as a lens where you go around kind of scanning plants or bugs or animals, and then it tells you what it is. It tells you what plant it is, what bug it is, what animal it is. And so here, here's some of what we found as we were scanning. Uh, first of all, we came across some spearmint. I was a little disappointed it didn't uh, identify it as meadow tea, but we'll let that off. Uh, that was a pretty obvious one. I think I knew what that was going to be. But, but then there was somewhere I saw, I'm not sure what this is going to be. Uh, and so in our front yard, I came across blue spruce. Uh, we've got several blue spruce br- bushes in our front yard. Uh, we haven't planted anything that's there, so I don't actually know what all it is. Uh, and then in our backyard, I came across Japanese spirea. Uh, I should say, I don't know how accurate the app is. There are some things that I'm scanning them like, that clearly is not what this is. But, uh, but I think it's pretty accurate on the next two because we found some animals. Uh, the common earthworm, we found a lot of those. I think that was about the only bug we could identify. Uh, and then we came across something uh, pretty incredible in our next one. Uh, we found a domestic dog. <laughs> yeah, that's what it scanned as. I had no idea if it actually scanned our dog or not, but the domestic dog, it's fantastic. This app is meant to give a lens to scan something through in in order to identify what is it and what is it for. What is it and what is it for? And and the Bible, and maybe we say especially the first 11 chapters of the Bible are, are maybe a little bit like that app where we can take some big portion of our lives, scan it through them, and hear God say, what is it, and what is it for? And really, over the next three weeks, we're going to kind of camp out in Genesis 2 and do that with several, I think, big areas of our lives. 
uh, this morning doing it with our bodies, next week doing it with our work, and then the, the third week doing it with marriage. And ultimately, we're not going to just stay in Genesis 2 as we do this because we've got to scan out and we've got to understand not only God's original design, but how sin has affected that design and what hope there is for us beyond sin. And so we'll scan out from Genesis 2 this morning as well as the next couple weeks. But when it comes to our bodies, here's what I think we find ultimately. Your body matters. Your body matters because God made it and sent his son to save it. We've got to come back to that over and over again. Your body matters because God made it and sent his son to save it. And so ultimately, we should want to hear what he has to say about our bodies. We're going to read in Genesis 2 this morning, looking at uh, just verses 5 through 7, and then jumping ahead to verses 20 through 22. So you can open up there if you have your Bibles this morning. I'll pray for us before we read. God, we, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to speak this morning. I pray for clarity, truth, compassion, grace, all that we need in this area of thinking about our bodies and how we should think about them, feel about them, and live in them. Please speak to us, I pray, through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading in Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Jumping down to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The, the first thing that, that we might see, and I think this will be somewhat of a refresher because Pastor Ben hit on this last week, but, but is this, that our bodies are individually designed by God. Part, part of what we find in Genesis 2 is language that talks of God like a skilled craftsman, like a skilled craftsman who creates every single body. And perhaps God's craftsmanship is no place better seen than in the human body. Ben talked about some of the the amazing facts about our bodies last week, and you can find all sorts of them if you just look it up online or read a book about the body or whatever it might be. And so I'm not going to go into many, but but I'll just give a quote from an author named Bill Bryson. I've quoted him before, who's wrote this book on the body that kind of reveals how amazing it is. He says, you could call together all the brainiest people who are alive— now or who have ever lived and endow them, give them the complete sum of human knowledge and they could not between them make a single living cell, never mind a human being. And and, and we affirm the truth that God has made billions of human beings 
along with the 30, 40, or, or more trillion cells that make up every single one of our bodies. Because, because we, we see that it's not just the first human beings that God forms as a craftsman, but Psalm 139 would tell us it's every single one of us and every single one of our bodies. There David says, For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. With these verses in mind, I just want to have us look at what what are three things what are three things we might learn or gain from the image of God as a craftsman who makes our bodies? And here's the first one, that your body is handmade by God. That's the image you get. Your body is handmade by God, which means that your body is both unique and good. Unique and good. We, we live in a, an area of the world where all sorts of tourists come to our area. Right, especially on holidays and over the summer, all sorts of tourists come to Lancaster County. And why, why are they coming to Lancaster County? Be- because this is where the Amish live. And they want to come see the, the Amish, right, and see their way of life. And often when tourists come to Lancaster County, part of what they're looking for when they come is to buy Amish-made goods, right, to buy something that's been made by an Amish person. Because there's this sense, at least from a tourist perspective, that, that what's handmade by the Amish is both unique and of better quality. I, I was looking this week and I came across a website uh, that promotes itself as selling Amish-made goods. I've, I, I can confirm whether that's true or just a uh, promotion tactic, but it says on its front page, we offer a variety of high-quality products. We work with Amish factories in Pennsylvania to ensure quality craftsmanship for every product we carry. Every item is carefully made by hand to offer one-of-a-kind uniqueness. We should recognize that exact same type of statement could be made about the human body because across every single human body is not stamped Amish-made, but God-made. That our bodies are unique, that our bodies are good, because they're handmade by God, every single one of our bodies. We'll come back to that in a moment, but we should see for the second thing, your body is intentionally purposed by God. That, that a skilled craftsman always has a clear purpose in mind as he or she makes something and designs something. And Psalm 139.14 tells us what, what the purpose God has for our bodies, that they might worship him. David declares, wonderful are your works. As he thinks about his body, he says, God, you're awesome. Wonderful are your works. The the, the body is not designed for you and I to do whatever we want with it, to live however we see fit in it. Granted, all of us do that. That's part of living broken by sin. But our bodies are ultimately designed to worship God. We're meant to use our voices, our hands, our ears, our words, and everything we do and say to glorify him. And part of how we do that in our bodies is to seek to love and obey God with our bodies. And then the third thing we might see is this. The body you have, the body you have, the body I have, is the body God intended you to have. We believe God doesn't make mistakes. 
Right? The, the best, the most skilled Amish craftsman will make mistakes. He'll cut something too short or forget some detail or have to start over from scratch. But we believe God makes no mistakes, none at all, which means that every single detail of your body, down to the smallest aspect of it, is exactly how God has intended it, or, or exactly how God has the, the body that he's intended for you to have. That, that doesn't mean there aren't things that are wrong with our body, as we'll see as we go along. Sin has caused every single one of our bodies to be broken in some way. But we have to affirm that truth while still holding fast to the truth that the body I have and the body you have is the one God intended for you. Now, now let's think about what that means for just a second. That, that means, first of all, that we should spend time praising God and giving thanks for our bodies. As difficult as that may be at times for some of us. I, I want to ask a question here. Do we spend more time focusing on, dwelling on, thinking about what we feel is wrong with our bodies than we do praising God and thanking him for their goodness and what he's given to us in our bodies? There's this kid's story that I think captures this really well. Uh, it was a kid's story called The Pencil, or a kid's book, and, and I've read it with my son, and the story starts with a pencil that then draws everything else into existence in the book. Everything else gets its existence from this pencil that draws it into existence. And so the pencil starts by drawing a, a boy, and, and then he draws a dog for the boy, and then a cat for the dog to chase, and eventually ends up drawing a family for the boy with a mother and a father and a grandfather and a, and a sister. And what you find as you read the book is that the people in the story rather than thanking the pencil for making them, ultimately complain about what they think is wrong with them. And so the mom starts, says, my, my hat is too big. Why'd you give me this hat? And, and the, the sister says, my shoes are ugly. Why'd you give me these shoes? And the dad says, my, my ears are too big. Why, why'd you give me these big ears? And over and over again, they, they complain back to the pencil rather than thanking the pencil for giving them existence. I, I wonder how often does that image apply, apply to us? Where we spend the bulk of our time when we think about our bodies dwelling on what's wrong with them, complaining about what we wish would be different than them, even if we don't complain out loud inwardly, rather than stepping back and saying, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me a body. Thank you for giving me this body and all that you've made about it. Again, that doesn't mean that that's going to be easy, especially depending how your body's been broken by sin. But it's part of what we're called to do if God is a craftsman. It's part of how we worship him. And then I'd say this too. On the flip side, we should see the way that God has made other people and the differences about us as something to celebrate. I wonder how often we spend time comparing envying or speaking negatively about the differences in other people's bodies and our own, rather than praising God for that and celebrating all the uniqueness that he's made. He, hear me on this, and, and I'm speaking from my own personal example of screwing up in this area. We need to be very, very, very careful about how we speak of someone else's body. To speak negatively about another person's body is a huge deal. 
a huge deal. Whether that be someone you don't know, friends, maybe even your own kids at times. It's a huge deal, not only because we, we, we can't imagine what type of effect those words might have on that person, but also ultimately because it's to speak against the creator who's made that person unique and different and good. A and so our call is to celebrate those differences and thank God for them because he's made each of our bodies individually designed. The, the fact that our bodies are individually designed leads to our second point then too. Our body shapes who we are, but it is not the sum of who we are. Our body shapes who we are, but it is not the sum. It's not all that we are. I, I think, and test me on this, see whether you agree with this or not. I, I think there are two kind of main errors in, in how our cultural moment thinks about the body at times. And, and the one is, I think, to underemphasize the body. And, and what I mean by that is to say that the body ultimately has nothing to do with who you are. Rather, who you are is found by looking inward, not outward to the body that God has given you. So that's a, to underemphasize the body, to downplay, to say it, it has no role in determining who you are. But the other, I think, is to swing so far to the opposite side and say the body is all that you are. And so who you are, your value and worth, everything you are as a human is determined by your body and how you look. And I think the Bible offers a better story than both of those, a better, better story that can correct both of those in some way, but that won't always see, be seen as good in our time. Because first of all, the Bible would tell us the body shapes our identity. Ben talked about this last week in relation to the idea that our bodies tell us we're creatures, not the creator. And he drew out, I think, thought some of the good implications of that with his math equation, if you remember that from last week, his example of that. I, I want to focus in this morning, though, on sexuality and gender and, and what our body says about those things according to what God's given them. The body God gives to us, the body God gives to us is a sexual body. And all I mean by that is we have male parts or female parts except for in rare conditions, okay? I, I, I don't have time this morning to go into intersex and all that we should think about that as Christians, but I, I included on the back of your notes uh, a reference to Vaughn Roberts' book, and he talks about that, I think, in a great way. And so I'd recommend that if you want to think more about this. But I feel like I have to at least identify that. But, but we see overall as a whole, God creates us male or female. So Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we should notice too that, that if we think about male and female referring to biological sex, what we find then is the change to Genesis 2 is God saying he created man and, and woman that when we come to the Bible, it teaches us the biological sex you are born with is the gender that you are called to live out. As difficult as that may be for some people at times. Gender is not insignificant either. That, that's why we have to talk about it because it's part of reflecting the image of God, that, that our genders are given so that we might uniquely reflect God's image in this world. Like I said, that, that doesn't mean that people won't struggle, struggle with their gender and question it at times. But, but we need to affirm 
if we're going to hold fast to what God said and the truth of Scripture, that who you are is ultimately determined by God and the body he's given to you and me, and not by looking inward and and based on what I I feel inside. Here's how Sam Albury puts it in his excellent book on the body. I I included that on the back as well, uh, if if you want to look farther into that. He says, whatever the biological reality, there are many who feel a deep and profound sense of unease with their own biological sex, an experience called gender dysphoria. This experience is real and worthy, hear this, worthy of our understanding and care. Those who face it need support and sympathy and not glib responses or even worse, demeaning comments. But Genesis 1 shows us that however complex our experience may be, we mustn't make that experience the arbiter of what is true about us. Our gender identity is not something we search for in our feelings. It is something we find in our bodies. We, we have to recognize this truth of Scripture directly confronts the prevalent story of our culture and is even seen as hateful and harmful. Because the story of our culture is that you look within to determine who you are. And and then based on who you are inwardly, you live that out. And anyone or anything that would tell you otherwise, that you can't live that out, is seen as harmful and hateful. But, But when we come to the Bible, it says, no, no, we look without to what God says about us, to how he's made us to find the real you. And then we ultimately live that out, knowing that his designs are ultimately what's good for us, even though it may not always feel that way. That we find ultimately freedom in living according to his design and not according to our own designs. Here's a uh, very, very incomplete analogy to that, imperfect analogy, but, but I think maybe helps get at it a little bit. I drive uh, a Honda Civic right now, a little white Honda Civic. And I, I've got several car analogies this morning, so sorry if you don't like cars. But, but I drive this Honda Civic, and it's been designed for a very, very specific purpose, to drive on paved roads. A- a- and if I, it's not designed to take off-roading in any way, shape, or form. A- and I may think I'm free to take my Honda Civic and to take it off-roading and through the mud and over jumps. But if I do, in the long run, I will cause harm and damage to my Honda Civic. That ultimately I meant to drive it as it's been designed to drive. Again, that is a very imperfect analogy. Our bodies are far, far, far more complex than my little Honda Civic. But, but I think it applies nonetheless that, that how God has designed us is ultimately how we're meant to live. And that that's what's good and best and right because that's what enables us and the entire world to flourish is by living according to his design. Our, our culture will say at times that's harsh, that's enslaving, that's hateful. And we must continue to affirm, no, it's good. It's good and freeing ultimately because that's how God has created us, as hard as that may be. The the second thing we we should then say is our body is not the sum of our identity. Humans are more than just a body. We're body and soul made in the image of God, as as Ben talked about last week. There's a tendency 
in our culture, and, and I think even in the church at times, to make the body the sum of who you are. And that when we do this, how you look and your body becomes ultimately what defines you and determines your value. This is, I think, the message we often receive from all sorts of different angles, from the shows we watch, from the ads we see, to the posts that we scroll through on a regular basis, saying in some way, the best looking, the thinnest, the most athletic, the strongest, the most youthful, those are the cream of the crop. And if you're not one of those, sorry. Or you better try to be one of those if you want to have value and worth in this world. And we need to constantly take up arms against that story and say, no, the shape, size, functionality, and youthfulness of your body, age of your body, does not determine your value and worth. But ultimately, the one who's made you, God, determines your value and worth. Here's maybe a picture to capture that. Imagine that tomorrow morning we we came across a long-lost painting from Leonardo da Vinci. No one had existed, but we could confirm, okay, this was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. That painting would be instantly incredibly valuable, even if it was just a stick figure that he painted as a little kid. Why? Because Leonardo da Vinci painted it. The one who made it determines the value of it. The same thing comes to our, is true when it comes to our bodies. The one who made them determines the value and worth of who we are. The Bible doesn't just stop in helping us to understand our bodies in relation to who we are. It goes on to help us understand what's wrong with our bodies. What is wrong with our bodies? And what hope is there in light of that? Because as we continue on in Genesis, we find our bodies are broken by sin. If we read into Genesis 3, we see that rather than living according to God's designs, the first man and woman say, no, 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 we'll live according to our own designs. We'll decide what's good and bad and right and wrong. And sin enters the picture. And that's what all of us do for the rest of time. And what we find in Genesis 3, 17 through 19 is that as a result of sin, God puts a curse on creation. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Romans 8 picks up on this and says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is broken because of sin, and all of our bodies, because they are created, are broken because of sin as well. Every single human body is broken by sin. It's out of whack in some way. Something's off. Something's not the way it's meant to be, and we feel it, and we experience it likely in many different ways throughout our lives. I want to give four categories here, and they're not comprehensive, but I think they hit on some of the ways that we recognize our bodies are broken. Something's off. They're out of joint. It's not right. Here's the first one. Shame. I I wonder if we feel shame in any other area greater than feeling shame in relation to our bodies at times. That we look at our bodies and how they don't measure up to some standard 
and we think, I'm too short or too tall. I'm too wide or too thin. I don't have enough hair or, or I don't like my hair. I'm born, I have a scar or birthmark or skin problems or whatever it might be and, and feel shame in some way because of our bodies. It, this probably varies from person to person as far as how much you experience this or what you experience it for. But I would be willing to bet everyone sooner or later feels some sense of shame about some part of their body. Here's why, I don't know that this is the right category to throw it in under. I wasn't sure where to put this in under, but I think it's important to recognize the concept of eating disorders as well and realize that even within a room like this, one of the ways that we might experience the brokenness of our bodies is by thinking that I don't like my body, I don't like how it is, and I want to change it. I'm going to go to such extreme measures to change it and control it, and it almost feels like you're in a battle against your body day by day by day. And my, my heart goes out to you if that's something that you, you struggle with because of the brokenness of sin in our bodies. Another way we see this, the second category is bodily aging and decay. It can be sobering to realize your body and my body hits its peak at sometime in your 20s or early 30s. I'm 33. It's downhill from here right? Like it is. It is. I mean, we, we feel this. We know this when we wake up and are in pain. Like my shoulder hurts. Why? Because I slept on it. <laughs> like that's why. We, we feel this when our kids get old enough to beat us in the sports that we used to crush them in. Or we get injured playing catch in the backyard. I mean, we, we, we feel this when our minds slow down and, and we start to forget things easier than we remember things. Like our body decays, grows old, wears down, and one day dies because our bodies are broken by sin. We're not hitting on death in this message because we'll talk about it when we come to Genesis 5. Third way is an illness and chronic pain. I mean, just look at our prayer list that goes out week by week by week if you want to see some of the ways that sin has broken our bodies. And by the way, when I say sin has broken our bodies, I'm not talking about like someone sinned in this way, so this has happened. I'm I'm talking general categories. Sin has broken our bodies, and we experience that brokenness in lots of different ways. You see our our prayer list. You see cancer, degenerative disease, heart problems, blood clots, diabetes, dementia, arthritis, chronic back pain, and all sorts of other things day by day by day remind us this is not what it was meant to be. Something's off. And then a fourth category, I already hit on this, but I would put gender dysphoria under this, of ways that sin has broken our bodies. To, to feel that your gender does not match up with your body must be an incredibly painful experience. Like to feel that day by day by day must be an incredibly painful experience. I, I don't know what that feels like. But I also wouldn't be surprised if there are people in this room who do know some of what that feels like and maybe even have a sense of fear over, I could never talk about that because I'm scared what other people might say of me. Gender dysphoria in and of itself, I would argue, is not sinful, but as a result of our bodies being broken by sin. But to to then identify as or transition to, to live as the gender that you aren't born with, I would say does fall under what the Bible calls sinful. No more sinful than my own 
pride, envy, and fear of man that I've got to battle against every single day and often fall to day by day by day. But also no less sinful than everything else we struggle with. But then we should see as well, our own broken bodies should create compassion for the brokenness of others. Sam Albert again says, we're all made of the same stuff and subjected to the same frustration. Christians should be some of the most compassionate people on the planet. Christians should be some of the most compassionate people on the planet. Just because the effects of sin on my body may look different than the effects of sin on someone else's body and how it's been broken is no reason for me to look down on them. No reason at all. It's foolish for me to act that way. Here's a, here's a picture of how foolish I think that is. Imagine for a moment that you and I were driving in a car, and as we're driving, we, we get in an awful car wreck. And, and as I get out of the car, pull myself from the wreckage, I quickly realize my arm is broken. It's cocked back in a position it's not supposed to be in, and pain starts to shoot up my arm. I was, man, okay, this wreck has caused my arm to be broken. And then I look over and I see you on the ground pulling yourself out, and clearly your leg has been broken. It's twisted and all jacked up. And I respond and say, Ew, what's wrong with you? Why is your leg broken? Why couldn't you, why couldn't you break your arm like me? We instinctively know how foolish that would be. That's, that's the same type of, I think, foolishness of when we would look at someone who struggles in a way different than, than us, someone who struggles with their gender or their body, and say, what's wrong with you? Rather than saying, that must be incredibly difficult. W- would you be willing to tell me more about that and your struggle with it? Would you tell me how, how I can support you in the midst of it, maybe pray for you? Can you tell me more about that? I long, and I hope you do too, long for the church to be a place where we can be honest about our struggles, including our struggles with gender and the body, and not fear judgment, but know that we'll be met with compassionate care. If the only thing, hear hear me on this, if the only thing other people hear from us is our biblical convictions— and they never feel our Christ-like compassion, then I'm going to bet the convictions will only fall on deaf ears. But if we lead with compassion, then it's far more likely that when we have the opportunity to share our convictions, they might actually just be heard, even if they're not agreed with. We know a Savior who's had compassion on us and still does every single day. As, as Dane Ortland has said about Jesus, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Not a pointed finger, but open arms. And, and, and that's what we should be more and more as we grow to become like him. But ultimately, you see, the brokenness we experience in our bodies is not meant to be the end of the story. I, I, I left out verse tw- the end of verse 21 and verse 22 when I first read Romans 8. Here's what it says. First of all, Romans 21, which I already heard, the, for creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then here's what I left out. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Our bodies are broken so that we might know our need for a Savior and reach out in hope to him. Our broken bodies are in need of a Savior. Our broken bodies leave us looking for something or someone that can fix them. All of us, everyone, both inside and out the church, believes some gospel, some good news that we think, this will fix what's broken about me. And the gospel that our culture offers is so often a gospel of self-salvation, where it essentially says to us, transform your body and you'll be happy and have peace. And so that may look like you, you, you go to extremes and exercising and dieting, thinking that if I can form my body to be what I want it to be, then, then I'll be happy and I'll have peace. Or, or, or maybe it's looking to, cosme- or to plastic surgery and cosmetics, which in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but, but looking at them thinking, okay, this can give me a new type of beauty or retain my youthfulness. And if it does, I'll, I'll have peace and I'll rest. Or, or to the person who struggles with their gender, they're, they're told, transform your body to match your feelings. Pump your body full of hormones, get surgery, start to live as the opposite gender, and then you'll be happy and you'll find peace and rest. But, but most often, this only brings a type of temporary rest and happiness that in the end doesn't solve our brokenness. In the end doesn't deal with it. These are the words of, of Laura Perry, who had, was born a female and then transitioned to living as a male. And, and I want to couch this in. This is one person's experience. I'm not saying this is across the board, but I think it's important for us to hear. I had many, many happy moments especially when I reached a new milestone in transition. But once I transitioned as far as I could, I was left empty and broken. What promised to be freedom had now become my prison cell. I was trapped and there was no way out. Why why is that? Because outside in transformation never works if ultimately what the problem is, is internal that our own sinfulness is the problem. Outside-in transformation won't work if the problem is internal. And here, here's a, a picture to, I think, capture this in some way. I, imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning and you go out to your garage and you go to turn on your car and it doesn't turn over. It doesn't start at all. It's one of the most frustrating experiences, right? This is not working how it's supposed to work. What's going on? And, and imagine if in that moment then you say, okay, I'm gonna go buy paint and put a fresh coat of paint on my car and I'm going to go to the auto parts store, and I'm going to get new windshield wipers and new headlights and new taillights, and I'll put all this stuff in, and and you go to start it again, and it still doesn't start because what's broken is internal, and what you need is a mechanic to ultimately fix what's inside. What's broken with us is more than our bodies. It's our own sinfulness of every single one of us, and what we need is a Savior who can come and deal with our sin and reconcile us back to God. That, that's the only way we find lasting peace and rest is in him. And the gospel the Bible offers is this. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Listen to how Romans 8, 2 through 3 puts it. It says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Translation, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. It's impossible. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. 
like summary of that is we can't save ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Only Jesus can. And so when we tell people the gospel, we're not telling them, get your act together, figure yourself out, and then come to Jesus. We're saying, come to Jesus. Like, repent of your sin and all the ways that you're trying to save yourself because they won't work. And come to Jesus and know him and and learn to love him and trust him and follow him. And as you do, he'll put you back together again. He'll fix you. Not me, him. Look to him because he's our only hope. And as we submit our bodies to him, and we start to find rest and peace in him. And what's incredible about that is then we find a new purpose for our bodies, or rather we regain the purpose we were created for with our bodies. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So what should the response be? Glorify God in your body. And we find that in all the ways that our bodies are still broken, because don't get me wrong, it's not this come to Jesus and everything's great. No, our bodies are still broken in this life. But in all the ways they're still broken, God is now at work transforming us to be more like Christ. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, though our bodies are falling apart, though they're breaking, though they hurt, because why? Because God is renewing our inner self day by day. I mean, that's a great truth for us to know, that in the midst of all the pain, the shame, the hurt, the brokenness you feel in your body day by day, none of it's wasted in God's hands. None of it, not an inch of it because God's using it to make you and I more like Christ. And then the ultimate hope we have is that one day we have perfect, new, resurrected bodies just like Jesus. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, all the brokenness of your body, every last part of it, is only temporary. And the perfect body that you are destined for in Christ will last forever. Last forever. This is the good news for our body, and it's the good news we have to proclaim to those who have broken bodies like us but don't know Christ. Because Jesus' body was broken for us, our bodies can be made whole again. I think it's fitting for us to celebrate communion on a day where we're talking about the body because one of the most shocking claims about Christianity is this. God took on a human body. God took on a human body when he came to this earth. And he didn't take it on for 30 years and then kind of get rid of it like it was just this skin suit. Like, no, right now, sitting at the right hand of God is God in human form as Jesus. That, that's what we believe. That's one of the most shocking claims. And Jesus took on a body in order to redeem and rescue us, including our bodies. But the only way, the only way for that to happen was for his body to be utterly crushed and killed. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, 1 through 5, in light of everything we've talked about this morning. Just listen to these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't measure up to his cultural standards of a body and why we should take notice. He was despised and rejected by men. He experienced all sorts of shame 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, including the sorrow of living in a body broken by sin. Not his sin, but, but ours. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. When we celebrate communion, here's what we're remembering. Jesus' body was crushed. It was crushed for me and for you. Pierced for our transgressions. And his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and have peace with God. That's the only way. It's the only way we'll find peace and rest is having peace with God through him. And we're also remembering with his wounds, we're healed. Now, now we live in this time where we're still waiting that full healing, where we still experience the brokenness of sin in our bodies, and we are longing for the day where what Jesus has purchased for us, new bodies, will be ours when he raises us again one day. But we can know with absolute certainty, absolute certainty, that because Jesus' body was broken and he was raised back to life, that ultimately that's our future as well. And that all the brokenness of our bodies will be taken away by him when we're raised to new life with him. So so here's what I want to do for just a moment as we celebrate communion this morning. I want you to reflect on what's one way your body is broken that you long for it to be healed. Where's their pain, shame, discomfort, something that is off and you're just like, I just wish, wish this would be healed. Just long for it to go away. Now, now I want us to take communion. It's a type of faith, believing that one day it will be gone. Not because we'll fix ourselves, but one day it will be taken away because our bodies will be fully healed by Jesus. That because his body was broken for us, our bodies will be made whole. So join me in celebrating that this morning. We we eat this bread because Jesus' body was broken and crushed for us. And we drink this cup because his blood was shed for us. God, thank you that you made our bodies. And though we have sinned against you, and as a result, our bodies are broken in all sorts of ways, you did not cast us off. You did not say, tough luck. You did not say, oh well. But rather, you sent your very own son to take on a body like ours for the purpose of being crushed, bruised, and killed and then being raised back to life so that we might find hope in him and know that one day our bodies will be made whole by him. We praise you for that good news that we find nowhere but Christ. Pray this in his name.